And then what most sermons will do is they'll communicate a main biblical truth, right? You'll take your text, you'll then see, okay, what is the biblical truth in this text? And then lastly, you'll answer the question, how can I practically apply this biblical truth to my life, right? Because if it's just kind of some head knowledge, biblical truth that you learn and then leave, uh, then that doesn't do us any good, right? We ought to um, read it, know what it means, and then know how it can influence our life in a practical, daily way. And so the way we can think about 1 John chapters 1 through 5 is kind of a, a sermon he's communicating, speaking a main idea, and then verses 14 through 17 are almost like the practical application part. Does that make sense? So we need to see first what's the biblical truth that John's trying to communicate before it makes sense for us to look at, okay, what is the practical application he's laying out in those last four verses, right? Because the, the verses that follow those four verses are really just his conclusion, right? For us, that might just be like the closing benediction to end our service, right? He, he greets them, he communicates the biblical truth, he gives them the practical application, and then he dismisses or concludes his letter. Now, there's practical application all throughout, just as there is all throughout any sermon, but primarily we close with it there towards the end. And so all that to say, all that to communicate, we're going to look at the purpose of Paul's writing. And the good thing for us is that we don't have to guess. Um, we don't have to do lots of deep digging. And the reason is because John very clearly tells us the purpose of his writing. He does so in six different locations in the five chapters. Uh, I'm going to read them all quickly, and then we'll kind of summarize what they say. But in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, he says this, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, uh, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the Righteous One. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And notice, he's, he's literally saying the reason why he's writing. He says, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, just seven, eight verses later. He says, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And then lastly, which happens to be the verse right before um, our verses that we're going to look most closely at today, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that convenient? 
that, that John just tells us here, he, I've written these things so that. I've written these things because. I've written these things for. I've written these things since. Right? He's communicating us to us why he's writing to us this letter. And so if you look at kind of the summary of all those scriptures together, we see that he's written uh, for us to have fellowship. He's written for us to have complete joy. He's written for us to avoid sin. He's written so that we might uh, know our advocate, Christ Jesus. Uh, he's written that we might know forgiveness of sins. He's written uh, because we know the truth. He's written to warn uh, us of those trying to deceive. And there are many who are trying to deceive. Uh, he has written that we may know that we have eternal life. And all of those things that we see kind of sums up in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And again, if you are kind of looking at this as a sermon, the way that you would typically do it, or even if you're writing in a letter, if you're trying to communicate a main thought, and this is what I do every Sunday, try to do, right? You communicate the main biblical truth, and then right before you communicate the practical applications, you remind them of what that main biblical truth is, right? And it's best if you can just summarize it into one point, right? which seems to be what John is doing here when he gives us 1 John 5, 13. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants them to know that they can know that they have eternal life. We call that as assurance. He wants them to know they have assurance of their salvation. They don't have to question whether or not they're saved, but they can know and be assured of their salvation. And this is an important, uh, significant topic that I want to convey by looking at the, the gospel as a whole. Because without assurance, you really are missing a key component of the gospel. The way we teach the gospel in our membership class is by using six words. Uh, the first word is God, right? The gospel starts with God because God created everything, of which included you and I. God created us out of love for us. He deemed us to be uh, good and to, to work uh, for him and alongside him. And, and so the gospel starts with God. The second word is man, right? which is where we enter the picture. Uh, and man, what did man do? Sinned against God. Even though God is holy and good and perfect, and he loved us so much, he gave us life, we all chose to rebel against the goodness of God, uh, which leaves us in a state of hopelessness because our rebellion warrants a consequence and not just an earthly consequence, because our crime wasn't against an earthly nature, it was against a heavenly, eternal nature, so it warrants an eternal punishment, one that we as uh, physical, temporal beings could not pay on our own. And so the third element of the gospel enters a picture, which is Jesus. Right from the beginning of time, the, the first sin, God then foreshadows Jesus coming to to give us hope, to live the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't live, and then trade places with us, taking the consequence of our sin on the cross, burdening it for us because we weren't strong enough to, to pay the debt on our own, and then giving us his righteousness. The, our theologians call it the great exchange. And, and not only do we, are we removed from the consequence, but because we're given his righteousness, we've now earned a reward that really Christ earned by living a, a righteous life. And so we now have hope for eternity, and he offers that to all people. 
Right? So you have God, you have man, you have Jesus. Um, I and mean, he offers that. It's a great gift that he offers, um, but it's got to be a gift that's received. Right? And we, see, we receive that gift through response, which would be the fourth word of the gospel. And we respond through, through believing in what he did, placing our faith, we respond with belief and with faith in Christ, the grace he displayed on the cross, and, and believing that he did it. And then we respond lastly with confession, confessing that Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave and you will be saved. Right, and so we experience that gift that Jesus gives on the cross because of our sinfulness against the Holy God by responding to the goodness of the gospel. And the fifth word is assurance. Is assurance. And assurance is significant because what happens if you don't have assurance? Without assurance of your salvation, we're left then just hoping and striving and working for it. Right, which scripture tells us that, that that can't be the case. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Right? We're saved not by works, right, but by grace. Right? Through faith. So that we can't boast. Right? And so assurance is necessary. Otherwise we're left just working for it. Because we couldn't quite be sure. Scripture tells us later in Ephesians that that we're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that we will one day receive. And what that means is that when you respond to the gospel, you respond to the gift of Jesus, you are then given the gift of the Holy Spirit. One, as evidence of your salvation, but also as assurance to know that you've been given the gift in part now by being filled by the Holy Spirit and experiencing the, the, the joy and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, getting the giftings of the Holy Spirit so that you can work on behalf of God the Creator to, to participate and fulfill the mission that He has created for us, right? but also as a glimpse of what's to come and to know that it's guaranteed for those who have responded and believed. And then lastly, we get to evidence. We get to evidence, and evidence is also significant, because here's the thing. As great as assurance is, and as key as it is, like every one of those words that we mentioned, any one of those words you take out, you don't have the gospel. You take God out of the picture, well, then we just don't exist, right? You take the sinfulness of man out of the picture, then you have no need for Jesus' gift of salvation. If you take out Jesus, but you have the sinfulness of man, then you we're just left hopeless with no way back to relationship with God. If you take out our response, there's no way to receive the gift of God. If you take out assurance, you're left working for salvation, which Scripture tells us could never earn us salvation. And if you take out the evidence, then how would anybody else come to know the name of Jesus? So they're all necessary, but the, and so there's dangers in removing any of them. And the danger with assurance is you can swing too far the other way. Again, without it, it protects you from being works-based. But what some people tend to do is they lean so far the other direction that they say, I'm assured in my faith, therefore I don't need to do anything. Right? Which then neglects the evidence or the living out of our faith. And this is what John is speaking to primarily in this book or in this letter. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, four different kind of excerpts from 1 John that kind of help paint this theme that, again, is all building to the practical implications in those four verses in 1 John 5, 14 through 17. 
but they speak to the dangers, to the joys of assurance, surely, but also to the dangers of assurance and misinterpreting assurance as well. So if you flip with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, it says, This is how, and again, it's speaking specifically to assurance, saying, This is how we know that we know him. All right, if you've ever wondered, Do I really know that I know God? Well, here's John, here's John saying, Here's how you know that you know God. He says, If we keep his commands, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. All right, so how do we have assurance? Well, we have it by living the way God has called us and asked us of which we can't do outside of the power of the Holy Spirit living and moving in our life. If you jump to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. And then again, he says, This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands. And His commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the whole world, our faith. And so once again, how do we know? We know by, by loving God and by obeying His commands, which we don't view as burdensome rules that we work to earn. We view them as how we have close relationship with God. We view them as, as, as understanding that that's how God implements his good in our life because we don't even, we're not even capable of knowing what's good on our own. Right? If you jump to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, this is probably the most harshly that he puts it or the most uh, boldly that he puts it, which if we're not careful can by itself uh, sound contradictory to other parts of Scripture, so, so bear with me through this. But First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. And so what all three of these passages are communicating to us is one, that you can have assurance of salvation, and two, you can know that assurance by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life as a down payment, giving you the ability to obey God's commands and love God in a way that you couldn't prior Right, so your life will look different than that of non-believers. Right? The evidence will be different. Right? You'll love God. You'll desire to obey God's commands. You'll lean on the giftings of the Holy Spirit. You'll love your brothers and sisters. Those won't seem like burdensome rules to you. They won't seem uh, just, 
just totally fleshly any longer. They'll seem, they'll seem like what, 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 just the way you draw close to the God of the universe. Right? And here's the challenge with those verses, though. Especially that last chunk we read in 1 John chapter 3, is if we're not careful, it can make it seem like the assurance we have is that we are now perfect, right? which is absolutely not true. Um, and so John then makes sure to correct on the other side, which, we'll see in, which we see in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so John almost does like this balancing act through the, through the book or through the letter as he's talking about assurance, saying, yes, it does come. Because, again, you've been given the Holy Spirit that has uh, given you the ability to obey his commands in a way that you couldn't have before and to love him in a way you couldn't have before and to, to view his commands and obedience to him in a way that's not burdensome as you couldn't have before. Yet at the same time, we are still sinners and we are still imperfect and our flesh is still going to win out in our life sometimes this side of eternity right and so he's doing this balancing act because he wants them to know assurance but he doesn't want them to think they have to be perfect but he also doesn't want them to just claim assurance all the while they do whatever they want right and so there's this balancing act in it all which all kind of comes to a crossroads with the practical implications that we see in the main text that we were going to look at today. So as I said, we were going to spend 80% of our time looking at the theme and the purpose of John's writing. Um, but now what we're going to do is, just as John did, see, ask ourselves, okay, now what do we do with all that? Right? God wants us to have assurance of salvation. God wants us to obey and love him. Uh, God wants us to love our brothers and sisters um, in him, right? Um, yet we're still battling and struggling with sin. So what do we do, right? How do we have assurance yet still deal with sin? And that's what leads us to our text, is answering that question, that practical implication for our life today. And it's very, very relevant to us today as well. So I want to read our main text once again, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. If we could get that back up on the screen, actually, that would be great. And, and it says this, um, This is the confidence we have before him. Again, it's more like and. And this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now let me start off by saying that I think the biggest question people typically have with this passage of Scripture is, 
What does it mean that there is some sin that doesn't lead to death? And what does it mean that there is sin that leads to death? Right? And I think that's probably the, the way that, that most people would be, people who might be confused, that's the way they might be confused. Um, but before we get there, and we're going we're gonna to answer that in just a second, but before we do that, I want to talk on verses 14 and 15. Because the initial implication that we see is, again, it's all about that sin, right? What do we do with that sin that makes us not perfect, yet it's our sinlessness that gives us assurance, right, that we're able to live out according to the giftings or the power of the Holy Spirit within us. But what do we do when we still sin? How do we work that out? And, and he answers the question by saying that we ought to pray, that we ought to ask of God, as it relates to that sin, right? That sin that's been the balancing act all uh, four and a half chapters up to this point. And then he says in verse 15, and if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that, uh, we, have, that we have what we have asked. But then notice the, the content of the prayer. Again, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, and so the first implication is that the only way we're going to do this is if we do this together. If we do it prayerfully and if we do it in community. right? Because it doesn't say, I think this is really interesting, it doesn't say that when you notice those things about yourself, pray about yourself. right? Pray for your own self. And Scripture is definitely not saying that we shouldn't pray for the things that we struggle with. But here it's only making the point that we should be praying for those sins that we see in others, which implies a level of community and closeness that exists only in the church, among believers. Right? One of the reasons why the church is important is because we need people that are close enough to us to know that we sin and actually see the sin. I think a lot of times what happens in the church or just amongst people today is that we're happy to get close to a certain point, um, but if we get close enough to where we actually see the things they're doing that are wrong, then we kind of have this guilt where we ought to say something, but we don't really want to say something. And what here Scripture is commanding is that, is that we must be willing to do that. We must, as a church, be willing not just to, to again, gather socially and be friendly with one another, but be close enough to know if I see somebody I know them well enough and I know that they've not read their Bible in four months right that I can be close enough to where I can one know that right and then two say something about it and as scripture here is saying pray and ask that God would free them or specifically um, as it says uh, give life to him in verse 16 um, and here's where it then transitions to what does that mean for sin that leads to death and uh, sin that doesn't lead to death? Well, let's look at it this way. Um, it starts off in verse 16. You go back to it. Verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask God, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. So who is the who is the audience that John is talking about there? He is talking in the context of other believers, right? He literally says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing sin, right, they should pray, right, and ask, and, and God will give them life, 
Right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not, that if you see someone sinning and you pray for them, that immediately the temptation will totally be removed. Right? But it means they'll be able to experience life even in the temptation and struggle and battle against that particular sin. Right? We know that because we see examples in Scripture where people prayed against things that we knew must have had simple, sinful implications, and God said no. Not that he wasn't going to take away the, 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 the life that they could experience in him, even in regards to that particular sin, but Paul asked for a thorn to be taken away, to which God said, no, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Weakness being the struggle he has in overcoming that temptation of that sin. And so again, we say that, that we pray for those who are sinning, the believers that we're living closely enough around to, to know their sin and pray for it. It doesn't mean that you can just expect that it's immediately gone or removed from your life and you're never going to struggle with it again. Everything's going to be uh, you know, butterflies and flowers. It means that you will be able to know and experience life even as you battle the sinful inclinations of our hearts that will maintain, as he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that we will sin, and if we think we don't, we deceive ourselves. It's rather that we will experience life in being reminded that God's grace doesn't just free us from our past sins or our current sins, but our future sins. All sins that we will ever commit in our life have been forgiven by Jesus. So what then is meant in verse 17, or verse 16, where it says, there is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. What does that mean? Um, the sin that, that, that doesn't lead to death, as we said, is specifically directed to the believer. Sin that leads to death is not specifically directed to the believer. Um, and so we can infer, we can um, you know, just infer from reading that verse, this referring to those who are non-believers, particularly those with unrepentant sin, which would be someone who hasn't been saved by the grace of Jesus. Um, there's another question that often comes with this. Well, is this what is meant by blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Is that the same thing, right? Because I think a lot of times the heart of this question is people are worried that they're going to accidentally commit a sin that is unforgivable or a sin that leads to death or the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And it, it worries us, right? And we know that as we've talked about assurance, you can't have assurance while also there being a possibility of you losing your salvation, right? You could have false assurance, thinking that you know Jesus when you don't actually. Uh, that's a whole different topic, and that's why the importance of sticking to Scripture is so important um, and, and calling out false teachers. Um, but assurance implies that there's nothing, there's nothing that could lose us our salvation. So even if you read, so Luke chapter 12, verse 10, on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So you see blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, not forgiven. You see that there's, a, that there's sin that leads to death. And notice that it doesn't say a sin that leads to death. It is sin that leads to death. 
And it can be a little confusing, and you might even have a translation that says A, um, but in the Greek, there's actually no articles. There's no A's in Greek. Um, there's, I guess, a letter, alpha, but there's no articles in Greek. And so we have to actually just infer where to, where to put them and where not. Um, and here, it, it seems way obvious that it would not. And the reason is because to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, uh, and let me just read a few. John 3.16, right? For God loved the whole world in this way, CSB version. It is one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say everyone who believes that doesn't commit an unforgivable sin or the sin that leads to death, if it doesn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, or it doesn't say, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 31, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? unless you later commit the sin that leads to death, or unless you later blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Right? Those statements, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and the sin that leads to death, uh, it's, it's widely regarded, refer to this, the unrepentant sins of non-believers. That being a state of unrepentance. Um, and, and not that you couldn't then ask for forgiveness, but rather being those that that never ask for forgiveness, that remain in that state. Rather than it being a specific sin, it's a state of unrepentant sin. And the reason that's important is because everything else, every other implication that, that John has given us is that we don't have to be worried about losing our salvation uh, because we've been given an assurance in the only Sin, then, that leads to death is that which is unrepentant. That which is a state of unrepentance. And so what does that mean, then, for us today? It means that we pray that the evidence of the assurance of our salvation is lived out for others to see. Um, and that we relentlessly pursue the elimination of any sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us, seeking repentance along the way, doing so in community. And that the, the sin it says not to pray for is that sin which is unrepentant sin of non-believers. And just a quick side thought on that before we close our time together. I'll go ahead and invite the worship team to come up. Um, that's not saying that we should not pray for non-believers, but rather that we shouldn't pray for the overcoming of a particular sin apart from repentance found in Jesus. Um, so oftentimes we make the mistakes of Christ as Christians of when we see non-Christians doing bad things, we want to try to help them not do bad things anymore. Right? And there's a place for that, right? Because we want, you know, we do want God's standard of goodness to thrive. However, even if a non-Christian stops sinning altogether for the rest of their life, they are still guilty of eternal punishment of God's wrath because of the sins they've already committed. So it does no good for Christians to pray that non-Christians would stop doing bad things apart from the salvation 
from the response of, of belief and faith and confession of sins in Christ Jesus. And so again, we pray for their salvation and we hope, and again, it's good also to hope that they stop doing bad things because those can be obstacles. But doing that in and of itself does not do anything for their eternal soul. We end up just making their journey to hell a lot more comfortable and that's it. But it's destined to the same place anyway. So what I want to leave us with this morning as we close is, is one, is an invitation um, to have the kind of community that John is ultimately talking about here. Right? Because he wants all believers, as we're here gathered, believers in this place, he wants all believers to know that you can know you have assurance in Christ Jesus. And that you're going to battle or you're going to live out that balancing act of, of the evidence of holy living with the inevitable sins that you still commit because of the inclinations in your heart that are impure all the way up to the point of, of, of being face to face with Christ in eternity where he, he wipes that completely clean. And so we need, in order to maintain that assurance, we need to be surrounded by other believers who will relentlessly seek out the sin in our life, pray that we will experience and know life, even in spite of that sinfulness, or not that we would continue in it, but that even if we continue in the struggle, or even if we continue in the battle, that we would not lose our assurance, but maintain life, as he says in 1 John 5, 16. Right, that those sins, right, that they don't lead to death because we have assurance already, that they wouldn't then also take our assurance away, but that we would maintain life in him. Right? And the sin that leads to death would motivate our holy living. Because what is it going to be that's going to draw non-Christians, those who are living in a state of unrepentant sin that does lead to death, what does God want to use to, to allow them to know the same Jesus we know? the holy living of his believers. And so the very thing that gives us assurance is also the thing that displays Christ to those that don't yet have assurance. So all I want to do is offer the same threefold invitation we offer every Sunday. If you are here and you, you feel like you, have no, you don't have assurance, and when I say that, I mean you're, you know that you're not saved. Or maybe through this talk or through this message, you, it's, it's been revealed to you that, you know what, I think I might have had false assurance. Um, or if you've never known the name of Jesus, that you would surrender to the gospel this morning. The, the six things we said, that God created and loved you. Yes, you sinned as, as all man has, but Jesus has made a way through his holy living and taking your punishment, paying your debt for you. And all you have to do is respond by believing that it's true, placing your total faith in Him, and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so if that's you today, know that you are invited to respond. I'm going to be at the front as we close in song. You're welcome to come forward. Um, if you are here and you have assurance, our task then is to do everything we can to maintain that assurance by relentlessly praying against the sinful inclinations of our heart and drawing close enough to those around us 
where we can actually know their sin as well. If you have a really, really close friend here at the church, yet you don't know the things they're struggling with, I would venture to say that you're not as close of a friend as you might think. Because closeness isn't just knowing all the good stuff and, and just all positive vibes. It's getting in the nitty gritty. Right? It's accountability. That's what love is, making sure they don't walk the, 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 the wide path, but stay on the narrow road. And so if you're here and you are a believer, let's commit to doing that together. And I say that not as one who just wants to be the one pointing out sin and, and calling people out and, and praying on their behalf. They might have life, but I know I desperately need it too. And so let's do that together. And then lastly, if you don't have a church home, therefore you don't have an organized way of having community and fellowship, and you'd like to formally make this your church home by joining as a member of Arlington Baptist Church, we also invite you to do that this morning. So three invitations. We all must respond. I'll be at the front if you would like prayer. Otherwise, I encourage you to respond as the Holy Spirit prompts as your seat as we close this time um, through singing praises to the God who gives us all this joyful truth. Let's pray.